This is the Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. The Political Insider is your inside source on politics from the White House to the State House and all points in between. If it's in the headlines, the Political Insider will have the story. Let's get started. Here's Bill Ballinger. Happy weekend, political junkies. Item one, shocking announcement from Lansing and Flint this week. Attorney General Dana Nessel announced that her prosecutors were dismissing all the cases involving eight defendants without prejudice in the Flint water crisis. I'm going to read to you the statement that Dana Nessel herself made when she did this or her prosecutors that she appointed did this quote the depth and breadth of concern for a fair and just prosecution and justice for the people of Flint is precisely why I appointed and entrusted Solicitor General Fadwa Hamoud and Wayne County Prosecutor Kim L. Worthy to lead the Flint criminal cases I trust them And if this step is necessary for them to do a comprehensive and complete investigation, I am in absolute support. I want to remind the people of Flint that justice delayed is not always justice denied, and a fearless and dedicated team of career prosecutors and investigators are hard at work to ensure those who harmed you are held accountable. Well, look, um, I think we can conclude from all the observers of this incredibly uh, attenuated and expensive proceeding. It's taken two years, millions of taxpayer dollars all out the window, and the attorney general is basically uh, saying uh, we are pulling the plug on any further goings-on with this case. Uh, It should be Mention, and this is very important, that Circuit Judge Joseph Farah was expected probably within 24 hours of the time that Dana Nessel made this announcement to probably dismiss all the charges. And this way, Attorney General Nessel is able to preserve the ability to refile the charges at some future date if she wants to. Uh, it's pretty disingenuous to blame the previous prosecutor, Todd Flood, who had been appointed by former Attorney General Bill Schutte, uh, who was no more political than the current Attorney General and her prosecutors. Uh, The governor's lawyers all the way along really did nothing wrong. Uh, This is about blame-shifting folks. Uh, the current attorney general thought she was going to come out a loser on this, didn't want to be left holding the bag. So let's just pull the charges before the judge throws them out. Uh, I don't think the prosecutors, uh, Hamoud and uh, Worthy, that had been appointed by Nessel, are going to go away easily. But they're going to have to manufacture evidence to bring any more charges. And, uh, folks, I got to tell you, I really don't think they're going to be any more charges. Or if they are, they're going to be reduced. And they're not going to involve all the people that were involved in these charges that have been dismissed. And that includes the charges against the former state health director, Nick Lyon, the former 
medical director of the state, Dr. Eden Wells, and two emergency managers in Flint, Darnell Early and Jerry Ambrose, and four others. Uh, those charges uh, are going to be very hard to refile going forward, and there's going to be considerable more expense, and I think the attorney general and the governor have to realize that um, if the charges are refiled, there's going to be a lot more money spent, and I don't think they have the appetite to do that or the evidence for that matter. Now, what else happened uh, this week? Uh, There was a poll that came out showing that uh, State Representative Jim Lauer, who is challenging incumbent Congressman Justin Amash, over in the 3rd Congressional District in a Republican primary next year, is ahead in this poll, 49 to 33 percent. That's got to give Amash pause about whether he wants to run again. Uh, This will be revisited many times between now and next year. We'll see what happens. Item number three, uh, the Michigan State House of Representatives passed a budget uh, for the whole state government this week, a $57.7 billion budget. That's $1.35 billion less than requested by Governor Gretchen Whitmer. Um, It's got to also be approved by the state Senate, and the state Senate has its own ideas about how the budget should go. But Let's say that this budget gets to Governor Gretchen Whitmer's desk. I think we know by now she said she will veto it. But then again, she said she would veto legislation uh, that came to her a, a couple of weeks ago on auto insurance rate reform, and she ended up signing it. We'll see what happens. This particular budget does some rather remarkable things. It does take $850 million in gas tax revenue that for years, decades, forever, had been going not to fix the damn roads or repairing Michigan's infrastructure. Uh, It had been going to schools and local government and so forth. And the House said, this isn't going to go on anymore. All the money collected at the pump by the state of Michigan from taxes, whether they're gas taxes or sales tax, is going to go to fix the damn roads, and it's not going to be spent on anything else. So uh, the anything else is like K-12 schools, local governments. So can they be held harmless if they're not going to get money from the pump? Yes, says the House. Uh, We're going to take $500 million from the school aid fund that has been used for higher education. We're going to give that to K-12 schools and to revenue sharing and whatever else. Well, okay, what about uh, higher education? Are they going to be held harmless? Well, the House says we are going to make that up to them by a higher Internet sales tax, and we are going to uh, cut $425 million in general fund uh, from the governor's proposed budget to do that. So that is the House version of what Michigan's budget should be like in the next fiscal year, beginning October 1st of this year. Uh, We'll see what the Senate says. We'll see what 
the governor says if and when she gets anything close to this budget. It's going to be very interesting to see what happens. Item number four, Benton Harbor Schools. The governor and her Treasury Department say we want to close the Benton Harbor High School because Benton Harbor is $18 million in debt. They can't continue this way. Uh, We're going to close the high school. We're going to parcel out all the students from the high school to area high schools in adjacent districts and to a local community college. We'll keep the K through 8 section of the Benton Harbor School District open for the time being. Uh, She got a lot of pushback. The governor got a lot of pushback, not only from Benton Harbor constituents, but from the Legislative Black Caucus, that is African-American legislators in Lansing in the State House and Senate saying this is a terrible thing, this cannot happen. Uh, So the governor went down to Benton Harbor last week, held a town hall meeting, took questions for two hours, said, I will give you a week to come up with some other plan on how you're going to start to pay down $18 million in debt and keep your high school open. Well, Friday of this past week was D-Day in terms of Benton Harbor coming up with that plan. We'll see what happens next. There's still a lot of other stuff going on. Enbridge, Line 5, Straits of Mackinac. That's still an ongoing controversy. And the census is coming up in Michigan. Uh, How is that going to shake out? A lot to be talked about on all that. We'll be back in a minute with our first guest. Okay, John Lindstrom is our guest. He is publisher of Gongwer News Service. Uh, John, welcome to the Political Insider. Hi, Bill. How are you? I'm doing great. Uh, you guys uh, did a great story this week uh, on uh, the Flint water crisis and the decision by Attorney General Dana Nessel to dismiss charges against these eight defendants that have been pending for two years, uh, millions of dollars. I'm not going to go there. Uh, we could talk about that for a couple of hours, you and I, but you did a great job. And I, that's the whole point of my talking to you. Gongwer News Service, you're the oldest uh, news service in Lansing by far. Uh, you've been going how long now? When was Gongwer founded? Well, the company itself was founded in Ohio in 1906, and we have an office in Columbus covering the Ohio legislature and politics. We've been operating here since 1961. We started covering the Constitutional Convention when it started, and then also started covering the legislature, the governor, and, and state politics at the same time. So getting on 60 years now. That's amazing. Um well, you made a couple of personnel moves in Gong Renew Service this week. What were they? Well, when we when we started, of course, everything was by mail, U.S. mail. Everything had to be printed out on A.B. Dick machines and things like that. And obviously technology has changed everything. We have been uh, all online now for almost 20 years. Um, and uh, as part of that, we have been adding a lot of services 
electronically that that uh, have helped our subscribers in monitoring um, legislative and state government activity. And as part of that, they keep coming to us with requests and ideas. And so we've been um, adding to them. And Chris Claver, who has been with us for quite a number of years, uh, was a reporter, has been a reporter, will still do some reporting on occasion, um, had covered uh, the state agencies, also happened to have been somebody who, who was brilliant with technology and started putting together all of these various things. Well, the, the demands on the technological side as the technology has changed, when you think about 27 years ago when uh, you were still using bulletin boards on, uh, and it took an hour to load up everything uh, onto a bulletin board, you know, now you have, of course, cell phones. A lot of people, the cell phone is basically their computer. You have tablets. You, of course, still have desktop and laptop computers. God knows what will be next, but we've had to switch with them, add those, uh, add services that will work with um, the new technology, and it has basically become a full-time job for Chris, who handles this not just for Michigan but also for Ohio. So we made the decision to um, put Chris completely in charge of technology, and we've added a new reporter to start covering uh, the agencies, the school board, the Department of Attorney General, um, and uh, various other uh, diffs and, and other departments. Uh, that is Jordan Hermani. Um, she's uh, uh, a fairly young reporter. She graduated from Central Michigan a couple of years ago, but she's already developed quite a bit of experience. She's done internships with Politico and internships with the Indianapolis Star. With Midland, she worked, did some stuff with uh, the Free Press. Uh, she is a... Uh, Something of an old head on young shoulders, uh, very knowledgeable already uh, at, at her young age, and doing a terrific job for her. She was the story you talked about uh, dealing with the Flint um, investigations. That was a, that was a team effort, um, and she was part of that team. She she put together some of the story, one of the stories on that on that package. Yeah, it just shows what you have to go through to adjust over time. And I would say, just as an outsider, looking at coverage of the state capitol by the news media, the strength of a subscription newsletter like Gongwer and your rival, the Michigan Information and Research Service, MERS, as it's called, has grown, I think, your status and importance in the context of capital coverage because the newspapers have cut back so severely over the last decade and a half anyway that you guys really uh, are the name of the game in terms of really what goes on day-to-day in the state capitol, right? I mean, what is Gongwer? How do you operate? Is it like five days a week? Well, essentially we operate every day the government's in session, and now with technology that can mean any day of the week. Um, if we if there's a if there's a breaking news bulletin on a weekend, we will get something out on a weekend informing people of that. Uh, uh, you know, for example, when when Congressman Amash said that he would um, he would support impeaching the president, you know, that happened on a weekend, and we did a story on that. Um, you know, every capital city in the world, it doesn't matter if it's Lansing or Columbus or Albany or Washington D.C. or London or Moscow. Is, is in its own way a small town and uh, an industry town. And 
and therefore, you know, you have a lot of people who are very, very involved in that industry, and even though they know a lot, they don't know everything. And so we are, we are a niche publication, um, just like Automotive News, just like Ad Age, just like uh, Variety. Um, these are publications that cover uh, their industries very, very intently, and sometimes far more intently than anybody else. Uh, you go back to the Reagan administration, uh, the only people that didn't realize there was a crisis with savings and loans were the people who weren't reading the banking publications because they were covering the fact for years before the general public realized this, that there were serious troubles going on in that industry. And um, the, um, so the, uh, uh, the, the, uh, the, the point of the matter is, is that, um, you know, you have to uh, uh, take that into consideration. So that's, what, that's essentially what we are. You know, we're a niche publication, and, um, and we cover state government. Now, the industry in general... Um, has been struggling and struggling terribly, um, largely from a revenue standpoint. Again, this is a factor of technology. You look at the newspaper industry, uh, the largest single source of their revenue for decades, for decades, for centuries, really, was classified advertising. Well, Craigslist came along, and that killed that. You know, no more classified advertising. So um, newspapers have been struggling very, very hard for revenue. Some of the few that have been successful, uh, uh, like the Wall Street Journal, do the same thing we do. They basically put up a paywall online. You don't get anything for free. You want to read the paper, you've got to pay for it. And that is what we have done. So um, we have uh, you know, we've set that up. We are uh, uh, continuing to do that. And, um, and we've been relatively successful at it. Um, so... Yeah, well, you know, when you look at the rest of the uh, news media industry, uh, you know, if this trend continues and they depend at all on ad revenue, whether it's classified or otherwise, uh, it's hard to see how things are going to get any better. But you guys depend on subscribers, uh, people who absolutely have to know what's going on in state government, and you deliver that. Uh, So, I mean, I think you know, you've got a kind of nugget of support financially that probably is never going to go away. Well, we hope so. We certainly hope so. It's it's a tough situation. I mean, one of the things that's happened with technology is is people people live under this fantasy that everything is free. And, uh, you know, you have to you have to make that plain to people that no, it isn't. Um, you know, for a long time, people thought, "Well, you're going to be able to, uh, you're going to be able to uh, have robots cover uh, <laughs> what goes on." Well, as, as long as human beings are making the decisions, you're going to need other human beings to report on them. You're right. Listen, we we could them. keep talking about this. It's fascinating. I uh, wish we had more time, but thank you, John Lindstrom. Uh, great overview of what's going on with coverage of state government in the Capitol by Gongwer News Service, John Lindstrom, the publisher. Thank you, John. Thank you, Bill. We are back, and we have a person with tremendous experience in state and local government, um, school government and state government, Dan DeGroe, 
uh, who recently retired, I think after 14 and a half years as superintendent of the St. Clair RESA, as it's called. That's the acronym Regional Education Service Agency. Before that, he was a state senator. Uh, He was the Senate majority leader in Lansing when he was in the Senate in his last term. And before that, I think he served a term or two in the state house. Uh, Senator Dan DeGroo, welcome to the Political Insider. Thank you. Yeah. What were you in the house? Just one term, two terms, one one term, one term. And then you went over to the Senate. You served how many terms? Uh, Five terms, 20 years. Wow. And the last term, I think it was between, uh, what, 1998 and 2002, you were the Senate Majority Leader? Yep. Well, okay. Then you go to uh, St. Clair Risa, and uh, you stayed there long enough. It shows you how time flies. Uh, Fourteen and a half years, I think, what, you were like the second senior most uh, superintendent of Arisa or an intermediate school district, as they're called in other venues, uh, second longest service in the state at the time you retired, right? Yeah, I think only uh, Mike DeVault, who's still, who's still there in Macomb. Uh, That's incredible. Uh, I, think of you, I think of you as a young man, and yet... <laughs> How how could it be that you had this much experience? Well, look, let me just ask you this, because you've had so much experience, not only in state government, where you handle school budgets and everything else, but also, you know, a RESA superintendent. What's going on in Benton Harbor right now where they're in terrible financial trouble? They're $18 million in debt, and apparently uh, the... Governor Gretchen Whitmer administration and her Treasury Department have told Benton Harbor, you got to shut down uh, your high school anyway. Uh, we'll maybe let the rest of your district, K through 8, continue for a while. We'll see what happens. But we're going to parcel out all the students from your high school to area high schools and to the local community college. And uh, there's been a lot of blowback from Benton Harbor about this. The governor had to go down there last week and hold a town hall, took questions for two hours, said, uh, I'll give you a week to come up with another plan other than what we see. Uh, Otherwise, we're going to push ahead with our plan. Uh, How do you read that situation? Well, (laughs) it's it's a school district that, had troubles financially when uh, uh, I was in office. So it, it's the fact that Ben Harbor has financial troubles isn't exactly new. Uh, it, it was uh, several times close to this. Um, you know, uh, they're probably in trouble. I, I, you know, I think they, you know, they may not make it. Well, is this a good plan that the governor and the treasury department in your opinion have come up with what are people saying i mean the idea of keeping the district intact i mean they're not dissolving the benton harbor school district but they want to close down the high school itself and parcel out the students well that's probably unique i know we've Oh, there was a school district over in Saginaw county i think one time we shut uh, buena vista yeah buena vista uh, we shut that down but um it's probably unusual just to do that with just high school, although it does allow the school district to keep some identity. And, uh, you know, it, 
uh, I'm sure their view is uh, the state hasn't uh, kept their end up. Uh, I know since uh, 2002, uh, we're 50th in the nation in growth in education dollars. And we've seen a 30% decline in those dollars since 2002. Well, let, let me mention one other thing. Uh, Albion uh, is a school district where they actually closed the high school also. And they kept, I think, the rest of the district open uh, for a year or two. And then they dissolved the whole school district in Albion, and they parceled them out basically to Marshall. Right, they sent them, right. And and, uh, apparently, in Albion anyway, the citizenry pretty much accepted this. And uh, they lost their high school, they lost their school district, but everybody appears to be okay with that. Uh, so it's not like it's unprecedented. Well, it's not unprecedented, but I, can, I think Albion's the exception. I think uh, most communities would be upset. Yeah, well, in Benton Harbor, as you know, it's like 80% African-American in all the surrounding high schools where the students would be sent are majority white. And so I think there's a racial overtone to this whole thing. I don't think in Benton Harbor they like that idea of having their students have to go to these adjacent uh, majority white districts. So maybe that's a complicating factor. Let me ask you about one other district, and that was Kalkaska. And you were in the legislature at that time. I mean, I think this was back in 1993, and they just announced before the end of the school year, you know what? Uh, we had three uh, straight uh, millage elections go down to defeat to keep our schools open. Uh, so we're just going to close school uh, early. And they just shut down like yeah, in February and, and or March. Was, uh, and that precipitated Proposal A. Right. I think that was that and uh, dramatically rising property taxes prior to Proposal A. Those two things kind of pushed it. I know in my area at the time, there were people that had had 30% increase in property taxes three years in a row. And, uh, yeah, between Kalkaska and rising property taxes, uh, I think that led to the ultimate passage of Proposal A. Well, that brings us to the question of Proposal A. Um, that was thought at the time to, if it didn't necessarily solve, quote, unquote, all of the problems of funding K-12 education in Michigan, at least it was a step in the right direction. It it tended to reduce the inequities in funding between the so-called rich school districts that had strong property tax funding bases and poor school districts that did not. And it also shifted funding, obviously, from the property tax, which was wiped out operational millage at the local level and replaced with a two-cent hike in the sales tax from six to eight cents. That's what it did. And everybody said, uh, we finally did it. After 30 years of controversy, we got this done. But, you know, some people have been arguing, particularly in the last half dozen, dozen years, that maybe Proposal A is still uh, not solving the problem as it should. <laughs> and and uh, something more has to be done. What do you think? How do you look at it? Well, 
I don't blame Proposal A. If you don't put money into schools, of course there's a problem. I mean, we're 50th in the nation in growth since 02, and we're, we've had a 30% decline since 02. So, you know, <laughs> if you don't put any money in, of course there's a problem. I don't know how you can blame Proposal A on that. I think you need to look uh, at the Capitol building in the executive office. Right. I mean, we never said with Proposal A, if you don't fund and put money in schools, somehow they'll get funded. Well, of course they won't. We've had, as I said, uh, we're 50th in growth in the country since 02, and we've had a 30% decline. Okay. Uh, the biggest difference since Proposal A is a change in the legislative attitude since 02. Okay, well, listen. And, and you got to look gotta... at executives as well as uh, uh, legislators. Uh, people can criticize Engler all they want, but... Um, he valued education, and uh, those were good years in the 90s. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, obviously, all John Engler did was sign the bill. You guys sent it to him. <laughs> well, that's, you, <laughs> there's nothing wrong with not that. exactly how nothing. it worked, I can assure you. Yeah, uh, nothing. There were a ton of meetings. I bet there were. Listen, we'll be back in a minute. we got to take a break here. We're going to talk more with Dan DeGroe, retired superintendent of... St. Clair Risa and former Senate Majority Leader. Okay, we have returned with Dan DeGroe, former Senate Majority Leader and uh, retired superintendent of St. Clair Regional Education Service Agency over in the Port Huron area. And Dan DeGroe, uh, I'd just like to ask you, what does ARISA do? Uh, an intermediate school district, in most parts of the state they call it intermediate school district as opposed to a K-12 uh, kindergarten through 12th grade local school district and as opposed to, you know, the state Department of Education right. and State Board of Education, um, intermediate school district or uh, RESA, what do, you, what do you do? What services do you provide? Why does your institution exist all over the state? Well, the, uh, most of them do uh, three three things. The first main thing is uh, they, they provide a setting for uh, students that are severely impaired at a central location, uh, which is a econ- more economical way than each district trying to handle a few students. And then secondly, most of them provide vocational education on a countywide basis. So does uh, it work pretty well in your experience, ARISA and an ISD? I mean, the system that you've got set up to handle exactly what you just described? Well, yeah, I think they work well. I mean, uh, most districts couldn't afford to do a, a voc ed program, provide all the, the equipment that the kids need to work on, and uh, you know, the, it would kind of be a scale on special ed. So, yeah, I, I think it works for the most part. And then we pro- provide other services uh, as well. That uh, Mainly it's a an economical way to deliver to local school districts. That's the mission of uh, an ISD or a RISO is to provide uh, services to local school districts. That's why they exist. Yeah, when you um, presided over St. Clair RISA, how many local school districts did that include within your RISA? I mean, what were the names of some of them? Well, we're seven. Port Huron being the largest, but 
Marysville, East China, Capac, Memphis, Yale, and Algonac. There were seven districts. Seven districts. Okay, let me ask you, how are things going in terms of funding education? Uh, (laughs) (laughs) At the state level? At the state level, because now the state has such a big role compared to before Proposal A, as we described earlier in our discussion, uh, because of the shift in sales tax and the revenue coming into the state school aid fund. And uh, Governor Whitmer has come into office and said, you know, I want 500 a million more for K-12 education. Is she right in uh, making that request, and uh, how do you look at it? Well, first off, you know, we're 50th in growth in the nation since 2002 in schools. We've seen a 30% decline. Uh, the problem uh, of that came before. Uh, before the decline? Before Proposal A? Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, uh We've seen a decline in educational funding. Now, Governor Snyder, uh, something I know we never thought could happen, uh, took money out of the school aid fund to use it for other things. Well, and we never thought that could happen. But he he uh, took money out of the school aid fund and funded higher ed, and, uh, that, and he so essentially used school aid fund money for the general fund. It was perfectly legal, but we saw five hundred, six hundred million come out one time to pay for a tax cut. So, I mean, one of the problems with school funding now has been uh, apparently it's okay to uh, take money out. Yeah, well, let's uh, shift gears a little bit, although it's related to what we're talking about, because it all gets down to money, you know, when you get right down to it. Yeah, well, uh, schools, money's not everything, but it's an important piece, certainly. Yeah, and in the Republican uh, majority effort in the State House and Senate now, they are shifting some money around. They're taking all the money uh, in the budget that passed this week in the House that is collected at the gas pump and giving it all to fix the damn roads and to repairing the state's infrastructure. And then they're saying we're not going to give any more money to K-12 education out of uh, money collected at the pump through taxes. So then the K-12 schools are saying, well, where's our money? Uh, you're going to take this away. Well, they say, okay, we're going to uh, take it uh, from the school aid fund that has been going to higher education. As you just mentioned, we're going to give it all to K-12 education. It's all going to be there, just the way you have just said it should be. And well, that, I think that was uh, always been the intention. Uh, right. School aid funding was for schools, not for higher ed. Well, in, in, the, in the scramble to come up with extra dollars to do all these things that the House and Senate and the governor want to do, you know, what they've talked about is selling the state portion of the Blue Water Bridge, for heaven's <laughs> sakes, over in Port Huron. You've got two bridges, and as I understand it, Michigan owns half of each bridge, and uh, the Canadians, I think, own the other half of each bridge. Is that a plausible thing? I mean, the House Republicans are saying if we sell the Michigan-owned half of each of these bridges, we can raise $500 million to $100 million a year. It's a one-time thing. Well, well, yeah, it's one-time money. So it's one-time money. I mean, it, it, to my opinion, it has nothing to do with uh, funding state government per se. I mean, it's a one-time thing. And certainly, as you know, $500 million, is not going to uh, solve any real or perceived problems. 
Well, what's what's the reaction of local people over there in Port Huron and St. Clair County, the idea of the state selling their half of the bridge? Does anybody care? Well, I think people care. I, I think the real fear is when the private sector owns it, the tolls will rise dramatically. Wow. Well, that's not a good thing, right? No, not if you're driving across <laughs> it, no. <laughs> How many, what percentage of the population down in the port here on Sarnia, Ontario area, do you think comes from people that cross back and forth every day who live in those communities compared to, you know, travelers from outside uh, who are maybe going from deeper in Michigan into Canada or vice versa? Well, most of it's from uh, traffic, normal traffic, not workers, uh, a lot of truck traffic. Uh, the Toronto to Chicago route goes through Port Huron. And so, uh, so it's not local people so much. Well, there are local people. I, I think there's less than there used to be. Uh, I think when I was younger, a lot of people shopped over there and stuff. Now Canadians come over here to shop, but uh, well, do I you? Mean, it, it's crowded. I mean, it, it gets a lot of traffic. I forget. I want to say it's uh, Buffalo is the only uh, other one that bridge that gets more. So, do you, do you uh, favor dedicating revenue to go to what people think it should be going to, like? Uh, gas tax money collected at the pump should all go to fix the damn roads. I think we're the uh, one of only seven states in the entire country that uh, siphons off money from gas taxes and gives it to other things, mainly K-12 schools. You think that's a good idea to keep it all in fix the damn roads? And then the school aid fund, as you say, it should be entirely devoted to K-12 education it shouldn't be going to higher education. And then well, I, I think if they're going to use the road money entirely for the roads, they're going to have to replace the money and add it on to what they give to schools. Right. And, and that's what they're trying to do. And they're saying, well, at least we're going to go back to what we used to do, and that's give all the money from the school aid fund to K-12 schools. And, I think and, that's a shuffling. Uh, I think they have to add it on top of that because otherwise schools still end up shorted. I mean, so we've how, always, we also, we always used to get the entire school aid fund, and, right? Uh, and our share of the yeah the, uh, gas tax. So if you're going to get rid of the gas tax, I think you got to take the money you're no longer spending on schools and find it somewhere else. However, I have very little faith that the current legislature will do that. Well, I, I think you're a, a supporter of the idea of um, Governor Whitmer to raise the gas tax uh, forty five cents per gallon, right? Uh, didn't you and some of your former no. legislative leaders, uh, both Democrat and Republicans, say... I wasn't part of that group, actually. <laughs> well, okay, but do you feel the same way they do or not? Um, yeah, I think there's more funding needed for the roads. Whether 45 cents is the right number, I, I've been gone too long, Bill. I've been gone since <laughs> for uh, 17 years, so... Well, you, you may have been gone a long time, uh, Senator, but i got to tell you, things haven't changed in terms of, of uh, you know, where money comes from. It comes from taxpayers, and, you know, I think maybe uh, you have uh, hinted that maybe 45 cents a gallon is a little bit too high, right? Even back it, it, in it your day. I, I don't know the exact number. Uh, okay. Well, I, I do think that uh, you know, what I worry about is I think this current legislature values education less than it used to be valued. Well, uh, I, I think 
before the show we talked about in the early 90s, uh, every major state in the country, major industrial state in the nation, cut higher ed and K-12 funding except Michigan. Wow. And I don't think Ingrid ever got enough credit for that. I agree with you. Listen, we could talk about this a lot more, but thank you so much, Dan DeGroo, retired superintendent of St. Clair Risa and former Senate Majority Leader Dan DeGroo. You're a great guest. Thank you. Thanks, Bill. Goodbye. Bye-bye.